Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm delighted to welcome to the program today the Reverend Dr. Lillian Daniel. Lillian, we're glad to have you with us. Thanks. I'm so excited to be in Texas. Yes. Well, uh, because she's from Iowa nowadays, uh, Lillian is uh, the senior minister of the First Congregational Church in Dubuque, Iowa. And uh, she has been in different places like the Chicago area, for instance, and in New England, in New Haven, uh, Connecticut. Uh, but uh, Dubuque, this is a whole new thing for you uh, the last few years. Uh, what's, what's the difference like being in New Haven, uh, Glen Ellen in the suburb of Chicago, and now Dubuque, Iowa? First. I love Iowa, and I came there six years ago, and people, when I got there, they said, oh, you know, why'd you come? Do you have family here? And I said, well, I thought anybody could come. <laughs> but it's beautiful, and contrary to what people expect, I don't live in flat cornfields. I'm in a very urban setting. Yes. It's a river city, and we have hills, mm -hmm. because it's called the Driftless Region, where Wisconsin, Illinois, and Iowa meet, and the glaciers did not drift through, so they didn't flatten the land. Ah. So we have like San Francisco grade hills. Wow. And, and a lot of bluffs and rivers. And, and I know you have a really yeah. kind of diverse culture in Dubuque too, and educational institutions, lots of colleges. Lots of colleges. It's a yeah. very Catholic uh -huh. area. Right. Um, apparently the reason that we have never gotten hit by a tornado, which hit everywhere else in Iowa, is because there's a statue of Bishop Mazzucchelli up on the top of the bluffs. Oh, well, it, yeah. So God noticed that. Yeah, yeah well, I definitely yeah. wanted to live under the statue for yeah. sure. But um, yeah, so it's really interesting to be in such a Catholic environment in a Protestant, you know, mm -hmm. a congregational church, very urban with all the wonderful things and challenges of urban life. Mm -hmm. uh, I love it there. But in five minutes, I can be in my kayak on a beautiful river and not see a soul. Fantastic. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned being a Protestant. So I mentioned too that you are the pastor of First Congregational Church, and that's affiliated with the United Church of Christ. But uh, the congregational tradition is just one of the traditions that makes up the United, right? So yeah. can you like dis help people understand some of this? What is the UCC, Lillian? Yeah, so we were congregational before we were UCC. UCC is a you know, set of initials from 1957 when we merged with others. But the church has been congregational since 1839 mm -hmm. when it was a log cabin mm -hmm. and then moved to a big you know, kind of cathedral-like building downtown in right. 1859. And um, the congregationalists were actually the pilgrims later mm -hmm. called by other people the Puritans. Mm -hmm. And they came over on the Mayflower, mm -hmm settled in the East Coast, um, later started moving to the Midwest. For mm -hmm. a while, Ohio was Connecticut's Western Reserve. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. there was that sort of East Coast to the Midwest move. And um, we're, our closest cousins are probably Presbyterians, right. or we'd feel a lot like American Baptists. I say, you know, we're very similar to Presbyterians, just, just better. <laughs> I can't wait for my Presbyterian friends to hear you say that. Oh, they but know. neither can you, because <laughs> You, you love to chide them, so. Uh, actually, the, the original spirit of the Congregationalists moving over has really kind of stayed in the UCC in certain ways. Like, I remember, uh, I guess it was um, 
John Robinson, who said in blessing the pilgrims on their way that yet more light shall come there from the Word of God. There is yet more light and truth to come from God's holy Word. Right. Exactly. This idea that the book, the Bible, was not set in stone, stagnant, and that, um, so the way we say it in today is we say God is still speaking. Right. That we believe God is still speaking, not just through Scripture, but through our lives. Mm -hmm. um, we don't wear the pilgrim outfits anymore. Mm -hmm. We left that behind. And we don't burn witches. That yeah, was an oh, that, awkward moment in our history. Awkward moment, We're right. extremely against that now. Okay, very good. In fact, you actually have women pastors, and here you are. We were technically the first denomination in the United States, before we were the yes. United States, to ordain a woman, um, mm -hmm. Antoinette Brown. Wow. And as soon as we ordained her, she promptly ditched us and went to the Methodists. Well, actually, we have, as Baptists, some of that tradition, too, because Roger Williams yes. was a Baptist, we like to say, for about 15 minutes. Yes. Uh, you know, he, he, he really founded Rhode Island as a Baptist and then became a seeker and other things. So, uh, we're, uh, we're the favorite churches of people who, like, moved on to greater things. Exactly. Well, so let's talk about your greater things because um, I think, you know, w one of the things I love about you is that while you have uh, experiences more widely from the local church, and we're going to talk about your books that you've written in a moment, you have also stayed rooted in the congregation. Yeah. Uh, you, you have a sense that uh, that's where the action is. and. Of course, I've done the same thing all these years, and uh, we have known each other in various ecumenical contexts yeah. uh, through the years. So I, I think it's it's interesting that while um, while a, a lot of the trend in American religion has been about saying, you know, the church has disappointed us, and uh, institutional religion has been uh, harmful to people, especially women, people of color, people of uh, other sexual orientations, etc. Uh, you, you said, yeah, actually, the church is uh, a place where the action really is, and you've kind of gone against that stream in a way, and you did so pretty powerfully in this book that you wrote called when spiritual but not religious is not enough. So what is it about congregational life that you sure. would like want to say is so vital to the maintaining of a faith and a faith tradition? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I wrote that book, I started writing on that subject because the Pew studies were coming out that said at that time it was one in five people were checking off as their religious tradition, none. Yes. And it wasn't N-U-N, it was N-O-N-E. Right. And um, that number was growing to one third if you were under 30. I think today it's one third for everybody. Mm. So, you know, we all know this. And there's a lot of hand wringing about this in denominational structures and churches. I actually think I'm fine with it. I think it's healthy that people can be open about where they are. Mm -hmm. And Christendom is over, the days are over when because you were raised a Baptist, you automatically stayed a Baptist and you married a Baptist. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have, you know, I'm sure we all have memories in our families of um, families that stopped speaking to each other because someone married, not even outside the faith, but a Protestant married a Catholic. Yes. And we're, we're beyond that, so a lot of this mm -hmm. is healthy. Right. Um, it's bad news institutionally mm -hmm. because our market share isn't driven by family guilt or business connections, right, you know. Right. 
But I, I've always been a pastor in that age of decline, if you will, right. and I feel like I'm privileged because I look out at a congregation of people who actually want to be there. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not just out of duty, it's out of desire. They're seeking God. I mean, right. they're curious. And, and I can't presume anything about their background. Mm -hmm. They probably did not pick the church based on denomination. It could mm -hmm. be for all kinds of reasons. Right. We could be the first religious community they stepped foot in, yes. or they could have had all kinds of experience. And everybody in the church, lay leaders, pastors, we've got to stop presuming we know who's sitting next to us. Ah, very good. So, when you have someone sitting next to you, saying the prayers, singing the hymns, going through the sort of rituals of religious life together, there is a sense of community that develops there that in the spiritual but not religious world is, uh, it, it, well, I, I think a lot of times they say that that's what they're looking for, but it doesn't always develop. We, we have it built mm -hmm. in in our congregational life, don't yeah. we? Yeah, so, so people define spiritual but not religious in different ways. So after I started writing on the topic, I had some of my own church members come to me and say, well, Pastor Lillian, I call myself spiritual but not religious. And I said, well, why? Because my definition of it is, um, is that you are doing this sort of as a solitary activity. Right. You are not doing it in religious community. The roots yes. of the world word religion are community. Right. So that's my definition. So, you sure. know, um, people say things like, what about a 12-step group? Is that not meaningful? I say it's extremely meaningful. Mm -hmm. You have community, right? Mm -hmm. You're talking about God. But I'm talking more about the person who, um, who likes to perhaps read a book, um, listen mm -hmm. to the TV, what have you, but chooses not to do this in the company of others and mm -hmm. chooses not to participate in a tradition that is older and bigger than mm. you are. Right. And to my mind, there's value in that because if I make up my own religion, um, it's gonna be as narcissistic and shallow as I am. <laughs> you know, I, I need to go to church because I need to say the prayer of confession Right. and remember something bigger than myself. Right, and, and really that's what scripture is in part, as well as in some traditions, creeds and uh, whatnot. There, there is this sense that we're having a conversation with uh, the church that just doesn't have to be walking around with us at the moment. Yeah, but and we're engaging were in this book. This, and of course, yeah. it's a library, right? We're not mm -hmm. engaging with one book. Right. The Bible is an anthology, it's a collection of books. And we're, we're engaging with these difficult, weird right. texts, but we're doing it as people have done for thousands and thousands of years. Right. And there's, there's wisdom in there. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of broken humanity and nonsense in there in mm -hmm. our tradition. And I think, you know, we can talk about that. That's, mm -hmm. um, in my tradition, um, the pastor is expected to be a teacher, a scholar, mm -hmm. You shouldn't be afraid of biblical scholarship, of setting right. the context, the times, talking about it. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, you know, the Bible is not a, a family values handbook. Right. You know, and, right. and to deal with those stories and to acknowledge some of these horrible stories, they're in there for a reason. And the reason is that people can be horrible. <laughs> and they didn't want to, you know, just tidy that away. You know, it's, it is a fascinating thing I think most people who haven't really read the Bible with intention yeah. think that, that it's just sort of an idealized, sanitized view 
of what people are supposed to be like. Oh my gosh, but There's yeah. just not, there's not one functional family described in the Bible. No, I mean, even even our heroes, I just got done with, um, with an eight-week sermon series on King David. And, you know, by week seven, I was like, can we get to the part where he does anything, you know, laudable? Right, <laughs> right. I mean, and we think of him as a great leader, but I also think that's the point, right. that he gets to have redemption, he gets to make mistakes. But, um, but yeah, this is not like 10 steps to a happy marriage. No, no. <laughs> and, you know, uh, the, the David story is fascinating to me, too, in that, you know, it's not before, but after the episode with Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband, uh, where he actually has her husband killed so he can be with her. Yeah, for no right. good reason. Like, And then later, David is said to be a man after God's own heart. Not before. Well, I don't know. God seems to be pretty partial to him, like when he was a kid and fighting Goliath and all that. I have like, to say, where the, where the <laughs> words come in is still later in the story, which... Yeah. I, I find so encouraging. Well, and if right? you if you believe um, that David is responsible for authoring, say, at least a big chunk of the Psalms, right. that probably happens in the second half of his life, mm -hmm. after the age of 50, right, right. where he's suffered, where he's ascended to power, where he's mm -hmm. lost children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's really paid for, for mistakes in a deep way. Right. And that's where I think he becomes a gifted author whose words we recite to this day. Yeah. So, you mentioned earlier that, you know, we look to the Bible about family and... Um, well, I don't, but... Well, we, we tend to. <laughs> um, but the Bible doesn't speak as clearly as some would say about sexuality, about role relationships, about uh, gender identity, things like that. And we were, we were talking before the the uh, podcast about uh, the challenges that we face as pastors now, mm -hmm. where we have to kind of work on our language a little bit uh, in ways that we didn't before, because we're becoming more aware that, uh, for example, some people do not consider themselves male or female. Uh, they they talk about themselves as being non-binary. Mm -hmm then they, they actually might want to use different pronouns, and we have to sort of listen to them about that. Reflect on that with me as a pastor, will you? Sure, as a pastor, and also because I've always been a writer, and I've tended to write books that um, clergy and sort of lay leaders read in different denominations, mm -hmm. I, I get dropped into like the world of the Methodists who are, who are struggling so much as a denomination yes. right now on issues of human sexuality will probably split in part, you know, mm -hmm. in two because of that. In my own denomination, we resolved that earlier on, we went with marriage equality back in um, 2004, mm -hmm. before states were even doing that. Mm -hmm. And the denomination lost members at that mm -hmm. time, but in a sense, it was clarifying, you know. Yes. it. And I watch other traditions struggling with it now. Um, but really, ultimately, the denominations can do what they're gonna do. It's how you treat people when they show up in God's house, mm -hmm. you know, that you are allowed to, to rent on this earth, right? Yes. And, um, and in my experience with the queer community, and that's, you know, a term that is increasingly used just to sort of include everybody, you know. Right, older people think it's a polemical term, and younger people are saying, no, we, we'll actually take that. That's, let's use that Yeah, which raises a great question, yeah. you know, who's right? And I would say 
The person who's right is the person in the group who tells you, this is what I would like you to call me. Right. The person who's right about their name is the person who has the name. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, where does it um, sort of occur to us in our arrogance to say, well, I'm going to tell you what I think you should be called right. because that's how we, we thought of it then. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just a basic respect in listening. Mm -hmm. And I think with the pronouns, um, you know, with non-binary folks, people will say, gosh, I, I, I don't know what to call you. And they'll say, well, just say they, you know, instead of saying he or she, say they. Mm -hmm. People say, oh, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't. it's a grammatical thing, which cracks me up. Actually, grammatically, you know, it, it, there's a history of using they <laughs> in the so singular, good. which even Jane Austen did, exactly. uh, which is curious. Yeah. Exactly. Like if I say, oh, you know, who's going to be filming us today for the podcast? Tell them that. You right. know, we do it all the time. Um, and actually, there's, there's a lot in the Bible about people whose names change mm -hmm. and who go through some transformation. 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 And, right. you know, you look at Saul becomes Paul. Right. And we read Paul's letter in church. Mm -hmm. And nobody stands up and says, I'm just so sorry, but like, I'll always think of you as Saul, and I just <laughs> can't get my head around it. You know, I'm just sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like, no, we do that. Or when people get married, if they choose to change their name, you know, people don't have fits over that. Right. And if they make a mistake and they accidentally call you by your, your name before, you just say, oh, I'm sorry, and you move on. Right. And that's the big thing I've learned with non-binary folks is like, or, or if, you, if you accidentally misgender someone, um, don't stop and defend yourself or have a debate about grammar mm -hmm. or make it all about you. Just say, oops, I apologize. I meant to say yeah. they. And right. you keep going. Right, right. You just keep going. And, and that was the other thing I learned too along the way was that, um, you know, it's really important when somebody transitions or tells you, this is my pronoun, you know, or this is my name now, if you care about that person, right? Obviously, if you don't care about them, just be a jerk. But if you care about them, um, it's really important to practice using their name and pronouns when they're not in the room. Ah, interesting. You know, so yeah. when you're talking to other family members, because people will say like, oh, I, I'll always call them, you know, what they want to be called um, when I'm with them. Right. But just between us, like obviously I still think of, you know, so-and-so, her as Mary or whatever. Well, it's kind of like when I was like a seminarian and I was working with the youth group and I would say, I'm not going to cuss or swear when I'm around the youth of the church. <laughs> I'm only going to do that with my friends. And then, you know, you run a stop sign and the kids are in the car and the first thing out of your mouth is the F word. Right. You have to practice. You do. You have to practice, you know, yeah. if you care about the person. If you right. don't, don't practice. <laughs> well, you've had a lot of practice in this not only pastorally, but personally, mm -hmm. because uh, I know that you have an adult child uh, who uh, identifies as they, uh, mm -hmm. with the pronoun they, and Ab uh, is non-binary, and yeah. so you've had to learn this in your own private practice as well as, as a pastor. I did, yes, Like, and I had always been comfortable in my ministry with the queer community, with mm -hmm. trans folks. I will say the non-binary piece, that was something new for me. Right. You know, an app came out, what, five years ago, is that there's always going to be something new. Right. You know, just when we think we should get the award mm -hmm. for how hip we are and welcoming, there's going to be something new. Right. And uh, it's always humbling. But I do think, like when you look at Jesus, um, he he treats people with respect. Mm -hmm. He engages them where they are. 
he doesn't give them lectures on whether or not they should call themselves a Pharisee or a rich man or what. You know, he is constantly mm -hmm. just sort of slipping in and eating with them right? Um, and listening. And I think that's what we're called to do. Well, even on this non-binary notion, uh, a lot of times people in the church would like to say, well, the Bible just has categories of male or female. But actually, mm -hmm. the Bible is a little more ambiguous about that in the sense that in the creation accounts and then yeah. even Paul later in Galatians uses the language of male and female having been created. He, he'll talk about Jews or Gentiles, it's one or the other. But male and but male female. male and female. Yeah. And, you know, I, so I, I've thought about that and in, in reading and thinking about it in our, in our own church. You know, when, when people want to enforce this binary and say, this is Christian tradition, this is biblical religion, and this is where everybody needs to fit, you know, it also says that um, God created uh, day and night. But we, we don't actually at dawn or dusk say, which one is it, day or ah, night? I see, it's not like a light switch, it's not exactly. binary, it's, gotcha. It's more like yeah. a dimmer switch, right? Like so there's that. a there's a kind of willingness to recognize the continuums of other aspects of creation, but when we get to gender, there's a tendency to want to nail it down. Well, yes, and I mean, first, heaven help us if we, if we go to a text from thousands of years ago mm -hmm. for ideas on how to organize gender today. I mean, yes. you know, in the same way that we don't go to that text for ideas on slavery. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. they took slavery as a given, right? Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. obviously don't. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, again, it's the Jesus test. What would Jesus do? How? Right. But I think the creation story is so interesting because you have the two creation origin stories, mm -hmm. both next to each other in Genesis. Right. One is, you know, Adam, and then from Adam's rib, we get Eve. Mm -hmm. And the other is, God created them male and female, them, like humanity. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, um, my goodness, the human mm -hmm. sexuality, gender, everything, I think it's like, right now we see through a mirror darkly. Yes. In heaven, we'll see face to face. Mm -hmm. Who knows what will be revealed? Um, right. You know, who, who knows? But I think the idea of allowing people to be transformed, right. um, the, the transgender world, I think, right now is teaching us that we're, we're all in transition. Ah. We are all in transition. Okay. And, you know, sometimes uh, folks on that journey may change their name or their pronouns more than once. Ah. They may say at different times, you know, mm. I'm this or that. And rather than say, well, how can I possibly keep up? You know, like, oh, that's the hardest job in the world. But I also have like a, a young man at my church who grew up in the church and everyone called him Andy. And now he's a grown up and he wants to be called Andrew. Mm -hmm. You know, that's his grown up name. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we have the capacity to love people sure. and respect them in that. So yeah. all of that leads me to want to pull up your most recent book. Okay. Which is, <laughs> is titled, Tired of Apologizing for a Church I Don't Belong To. <laughs> uh, 
spirituality without stereotypes, religion without ranting. So yeah. this book uh, is sort of a follow-up in a way to the spiritual book about but not religious, spiritual yes. but not religious. And uh, I, I think it goes to this conversation in a way because what we're talking about is how I think you and I both agree the church can be the kind of community that practices in private, in a way, what we want to be true publicly for others, instead of always being the organization, religious organization, that reacts to what's going on publicly. Yeah, yeah. That in a sense, this can be this sort of really uh, fertile, ground for learning this new humanity that God is calling us to. And in a way, we as ministers get pigeonholed. You know, here we are, we're pastors of Christian churches, and yeah. boy, I've got issues with the church. Oh, I mean, just think of the portrayal of pastors or church members in the movies, in the media. Yes. It's generally this judgmental, angry right. flock who do whatever the charismatic mm -hmm. bullying pastor tells them to. Well, first, I would love to have a church that did that. It, <laughs> like, I can't pull it off. No one does what I ask them to at my church. Yeah. They never have. But, um, but no, I, I think where's the portrayal of the church people I know right. who are diverse and questioning and debating mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. challenging each other and challenging me and mm -hmm. doing the real work and who don't think that they're perfect. Mm -hmm. I mean, we say the prayer of confession every week because we need it. Yes. We're not saying it for everybody else out there. Right. And so that's the picture of church that I think we need to talk about more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think what happens is when you're a part of a church that perhaps has a high value on inclusivity or right. tolerance or interfaith dialogue, et cetera, et cetera, we have sort of slipped into the don't ask, don't tell mode when mm, it comes to our mm, faith. Yeah. We're terrified to out ourselves as Christians because we don't want people to think we're those kind of Christians. Right. You know, like right. as a pastor, you know, you're on the airplane and like someone says, what do you do for a living? And you're going to say like, I'm a roofer because you don't want to be associated with the nut job pastor who's saying that mm -hmm. the hurricane hit this country because you know, they did something wrong. I mean, you know, we're all kind of embarrassed by like segments mm -hmm. of the church family, but I think to just go underground or hide, mm -hmm. it's not the answer, you know? So right. that was what I meant, like, stop apologizing for these churches that are sort of stereotypes or other people's churches, mm -hmm. and instead just talk honestly, not so much boosting the institution, but what do you get by participating in a religious community? Mm -hmm. You know, why mm -hmm. does it, make your life richer? What right. difference does it make? I think it's something I've loved about watching you over the years. And I don't know whether it's your theological orientation, your personality, or what it is exactly, but almost whenever the church uh, is going in one direction and just going all in on this, you sort of say, stop, wait a minute. Let, let's look at the other side of this. And yeah. you've, I've seen you do this uh, numerous times. So with the spiritual but not religious bunch, for instance. No, mm -hmm. let's talk about religion. When, when I know, you know, there were, there was a movement of uh, people who felt like maybe they were graduating out of the ministry, into, you know, other pursuits and yes. leaving the local church. Yeah. You were like, wait, wait, wait. And wanted but, a medal for it. Exactly, and <laughs> and wanted everybody to praise them, and they did. 
Uh, and you were like, yeah, wait a minute, let, let, the action is in the local church, and this is where it's hard, but it's good. That's where the rubber meets the road. Like, if we could all do this in solitary confinement, yes, we could all get it right. Yeah. But you let human beings in the building, and we're going to screw it up. Right. We're, we're right. going to do what we do. But that's where we actually, like, have to wrestle right. with loving your neighbor. It's easy right. to love your neighbor when you don't ever see your neighbor. Right. Or you don't have to, like, pass bylaws with your neighbor or be mm -hmm. on a committee with your neighbor. Oh, God. Yes, yes. Like, uh, well, in, and so in this book, you're, you're actually, in some ways, uh, taking on your own um, tendency to want to hide or the or apologize. Or apologize. Like, let me beat you to it. The witch trials, the inquisitions. Exactly. Like. <laughs> okay, we got, we, yeah. we're, we're all about that. But, but you also have a way of taking on even your more liberal progressive tradition and saying, mm. right now it's all about Brene Brown and vulnerability and all, but um, some of that goes a long way and it's important, but what else would you like to say, Lillian? So it's not all about me. Yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciate that for many people, their lives have been changed by Brene Brown's important work on shame and overcoming shame right. and how it, it, right. it can really be toxic. But I also think there's just, everyone's rushing to be vulnerable now. Mm -hmm. It's like the vulnerability peddlers. Right. And I've gone to talks where, you know, in the Christian world or where have you, people will say, okay, I'm gonna now tell you something you never told anybody before. And mm -hmm. I'm sitting there going, it was in your last book. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, but you, but there's this way in which you say, I'm going to be vulnerable or you're praised for it. And, um, you know, some vulnerability is deep and meaningful and some of it is just narcissism and another yeah. way to talk about ourselves all the time. Mm. Um, and, mm. uh, you know, it's, there's a, there's a, a role for humility in this right. that I think comes from Christian practice that mm -hmm. would help us discern when we've overshared, when we've undershared, yeah. what we're doing for the, a greater purpose mm -hmm. and what we're doing just to unload. Um, so there's a way in which a lot of progressive and open-minded Christians are too modest about church. And mm -hmm. that's what I was getting at, that right. before you apologize for the other churches or before you try to invite people to your church by telling them what it's not, right. you know, go to the God thing. So there was, I had a great experience. I learned so much by going to other parts of the Christian family. So I had an awesome time where I went to Denmark to Copenhagen mm -hmm. and they have like a national Protestant church in, in Denmark. Mm -hmm. And I was supposed to talk about preaching and evangelism. And you know, when you have a nationally funded church, um, that's just an entirely different dynamic. Mm -hmm. And so people pay taxes, but nobody really goes. Right. And they're sort of obligated to do certain things. And so, you know, we talk about church growth and decline here. Mm -hmm. Europe is, you know, yeah. total, and Denmark, like, further mm -hmm. down, right? So, um, so they were wonderful. And here I am, I'm lecturing in English. They are all following it in English, you know. But at the break, I said, so here I am in Copenhagen. It's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. What should I do? And they, they said, well, it's a very nice city, but it's no nicer than other cities. You have many nice cities in America. Oh. And I said, oh no, but I, uh, yeah, but I said like, yeah. it's so pretty, like, are there any special places to eat? Like anything I should see? Well, I'm sure you have many things to see where you're from. And like, yeah. I was like, 
what about a museum? Like, should I go, well, we have a museum, but uh, I, there are many good museums <laughs> in other places. And I was like, could you just say something good here? And right. so I was like, please, just, you know, you're not right. being braggy. Like, just right. tell me something special to you. And the guy goes, oh, oh, he goes, there, there is a festival, there is a festival. You go down to the square, they have a band, they have music. Um, it's a very, very wonderful festival. Yes, we have a festival, but it is finished. Oh, my. And, <laughs> you know, meaning it had already occurred, right? Right, right. And so I thought this was so hilarious, and I'm telling my friends but about it later. But what a good parable, yeah. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, that's how people in our churches. Yes. Like, people will say, tell me about your church. And we say, well, it's no better than any other religion. You right. Know? But really, like, what's good about it? You know, and basically, well, we had a festival, but it is finished. Oh, wow. You know? Yeah. Well, Lillian, I, I can only say that you always make us think when we think we already have arrived. And you, you make us stop and look at it differently. And that's, I think, one of your spiritual gifts. So thank, thank you for doing that. And yeah. thank you for joining us on Good God and for encouraging us about, about church. Oh, thanks to you for getting all these different people in conversation with each other, especially, I mean, how important that's been when we couldn't sit down together in person. Right and what a blessing that was. Right. And I think we, we have all kinds of people out there who've had the opportunity to dip their toe into different traditions they never would have right. if it hadn't been for lying on the couch for a year. <laughs> well, let's all hope, in our position at least, that some of them get off the couch and come back <laughs> and join us in, in congregational life in person. Yeah, because the so, festival's still going. <laughs> the festival's still going, exactly. Thanks for being on Good God, Lillian. Thank you. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2021 by Faith Commons.